You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys here today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, let's go there and turn there now. We're in chapter 2 today. If uh, you are new, we started this series a few weeks ago, and we are working our way through the book of 1 Peter, and God has just shown us so many great truths. Our small groups are going through 1 Peter, and, and uh, so many great stories and great things happening. I, I expect great things to happen in the days ahead uh, as well. Next Sunday, as we are in chapter, uh, really that last part of chapter 2, and we're going to get into chapter 3 and in the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at God and politics and how uh, we as uh, Christians uh, engage the culture around us. So that's next week. That'll be exciting. I, I, I'm sure you'll, you'll be, um, especially in this season of our country, uh, with, with the uh, political race that's happening, that'll be helpful. And then the following week will be on marriage. So uh, if you're married or hope to be married one day, that's going to be a beneficial day as well. So next few weeks, a lot of cool things happening here at FC. Hope you're inviting people to come. This is a great series to invite people who aren't believers, who aren't Christians to come. Uh, great ways to get them connected. And so uh, we're going to start in chapter 2 today. Forget, uh, forgive my uh, uh, nasaliness today because just like some of you, I've, I've been battling a cold and so uh, taking some Sudafed and so I'm a little groggy as well. So if I say anything a little weird or off base, I'm going to blame it on the Sudafed. So uh, just kidding, don't go to work and say, our pastor preached high on Sunday. It was very... No, I'm not, I promise you, uh, just a little groggy. But uh, let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, just keep your Bibles open. We're going to continue to work through this. But verse 1, we see this word, so. And so he begins this passage by saying, hey, because of what I just told you, uh, do this. And so the, we remember last week, he, we were talking about how we are not uh, living in this world forever. We are called exiles living in this world. We're not home we are, are living and uh, preparing ourselves to be with Jesus forever in eternity. And so as I prepare to live with Jesus, if I'm preparing my mind and my, my life to live with him in eternity, um, I will be able to live for him today. But if I'm not thinking about being with him in the future, then I probably won't be living for him today. And so we, we trust in the hope of Jesus. We looked at this precious blood of Jesus that was given to us, that ransomed us out of darkness, ransomed us out of the bondage to sin. And he has given us the hope of our eternal salvation. And so, yes, we are not home. And yet my home is still in the suburbs of Maryville. Like I do have a home here and I'm living here. And just because I'm living for eternity doesn't mean that I'm going to lock myself in my home and wait for Jesus to come. No, I want to engage culture with the truth of scripture. And so I'm going to live and breathe in the community around me. And and so he says, because of what I've, I've just told you you're not an exile you've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus now he's going to say here's what you're supposed to do with that 
And so he gives us some practical ways for us to live. He gives us this perspective to begin to live and, and a way for us to call us to live in this culture to make a difference. And so he says in verse 2, I want you to live and imitate a newborn baby. In other words, he wants us to crave the word of God like a newborn baby craves his or her next bottle. Now, if you're a parent, think back to the day you took your firstborn child home with you. Uh, if you were like me, I was scared to death. Over 13 years ago, my, my first child was born. My daughter was beautiful and lovely. We left the hospital. We had the latest technology, seats and buckles and straps and cushions and mirrors so we could see. And at that time, we had the, you know, the, 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 the monitor that we could hear. We, we got everything we needed because we were scared and didn't know what we were doing. And we got home and I quickly realized that I had brought the most selfish being in the entire world into my house. <laughs> so, so selfish. All she cared about was herself. She cried when she didn't get her way. Every time she wanted to eat, she screamed. Like everything was about her, right? She didn't contribute anything to the house. <laughs> she, did, she didn't clean. She didn't do anything. She brought no money to the table. Everything was about her. And yet we, we loved everything about this precious little baby, right? Now, God's not calling you and I to love the Bible and cry and scream like this selfish little child. That's not what he's calling us to do. But he is calling us to long for and to crave the word of God, just like a newborn infant is focused on and is craving that next bottle. Peter says to long for the word of God, to have a hunger for the word of God. And when we have this deep desire for the word of God, when we experience the truth of the gospel, he says in verse two here that through it, by it, you may grow up into salvation. What that means is as we love the word of God, as we crave the word of God, as we uh, hear it, learn it, apply this word of God to our life, we'll grow up. We have grown-ups in the room today, and yet because you don't know the word of God, you are still spiritually infants. And when you are a spiritual infant, you are extremely selfish. And Peter says, I want you to long for the word of God as you long for it and crave it. As you absorb the word of God, you will grow up into your salvation. And he says, if indeed... You have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, if you have accepted Christ, God has saved you. You have a taste for the gospel, the truth of the gospel. And when you taste that truth, when God puts that appetite in you, and, and, and you've tasted this truth, you will long for it. Anything that you have tasted that you enjoy, you will crave, you will long for. Psalm 34, 8 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Anytime you taste the truth of the gospel, you will indeed be satisfied and you will indeed be filled. And you will crave more and more of it. As you dive into it, you want more and more truth. Think of your favorite restaurant today. Why do you like that restaurant? Because of the steak they give you. Whatever that dessert is that you love, and so you'll go back to that restaurant to get that meal 
again. It's kind of like this place. Now, for a lot of people, this is very satisfying, right? I mean, you, 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 you take this, and, and I know you haven't had lunch yet, so this is cruel. But when you take a look at the beauty that is inside this assortment, right? You can even smell it, can't you? Right now, you hate me. You're looking at this, and, and I don't know if you're like the jelly-filled guy or the sprinkle person or the Boston cream or the blueberry, but all of it is very satisfying, right? It doesn't really matter. I'll just, you know, Russian roulette, pick one, and I will be satisfied. And some of you are like, that's good, Trent, but I really go there for this, right? Because it's the combination of this that I long for. And so when we have tasted the goodness of the sugary sweetness from heaven, we want to return, and we want to experience more of it. Now, in this case right here, you know that there are some side effects that aren't too pleasant. So, so even though you long for this, you also long to shed a few pounds. You also long not to have a heart attack. And so you only dip your toe into this pool occasionally, right? However, when we look at what we taste in the gospel, we see, in fact, that there are no bad side effects. There's nothing that we got to worry about. Like, when we come to the word of God, there is only deep, rich goodness, mercy, acceptance, and love, and truth. And if you have indeed tasted the goodness of the gospel, you long for it. Now, here's the great news. If you are not feeding yourself today, you are not in the word of God. The good news for you is if you begin to ask God for a hunger and a desire for the word of God, he will whet your appetite. He will give you that desire to study and to be in the word of God. And so if you're not in the word of God today, pray today. God, give me this hunger and desire for your truth and your word. And I promise you, he will begin to answer that. And as you dive into it, you will begin to grow up in your salvation. Now, in the same way that he can give us desires, the word of God also can take away desires. And so a, an, an evil desire or a desire to sin or to do something that is contrary to God's will, by going to his word, he can put that to death. He will begin to take that desire away. So here's why he says, put away. And he gives us a list of things. Okay, as you live in the world, as you engage culture with the truth of Scripture, here's a few things that you've got to put away. You've got to take off. You've got to, you've got to do away with. In the same way he can give you the desire to read and love the Word of God and the truth of God, he can help you put away these things. And the first thing on the list is the word malice. He says, I want you to put away all malice in your life. Malice is a desire to do someone harm. And so when your kids harm a brother or sister and you say, hey, you can't do that, don't say that, don't hit him, don't hit her, then they, they say something like, well, I didn't mean to. Like, okay, well, if you don't mean to, we still have to apologize and work through that. Malice is when you actually mean to hurt someone. So you meant to hurt them with your words. You mean to hurt them with a, a, a word or even physically. And he says, I want you to put away all malice, any desire to hurt someone, he says, put it away. And then he says, he gives us a, a set of twins here. And the twins are deceit and hypocrisy. He says, I want you to put away deceit and hypocrisy. Now, 
The reason why they are twins is because anytime you are being a hypocrite or you're doing a hypocritical thing, you are deceiving people. At least your attempt is to deceive them. I'm deceiving you on, on my spiritual condition. I am, I'm deceiving you in this way that I'm telling you everything is okay. I'm living or showing you a facade. I'm showing you what I want you to see, but the reality is I'm far from God. I'm really evil. I'm, I'm, I'm distant. And, and, and so we, we, we try to deceive people. We, we try to do that in the church uh, very frequently, don't we? we? We try to put on this facade like everything is okay. We try to pretend like, you know, everything is okay. So you're asked, how are you doing? And you say, I'm doing fine. And the reality is you're not doing fine. And so at FC, we encourage you to be authentic and real in that struggle. Like I struggle as a man of God and I have temptations and I have sin in my life and I want to, in this environment, be able to share these struggles and not pretend like I have it all figured out and, and present this facade like everything is great when there are challenges. And so church can be so much more fulfilling if you will finally just stop trying to deceive those around you. Yeah, everything is fine. We fought on the way to church today and, you know, she hates me, but no, things are great. It's like we don't have to pretend that's why small groups are so important. It's why small groups are so valuable in the life of a believer where we can gather around God's word and say, this is what I'm struggling with. Help me, pray with me. And we can also hear the burdens of others and, and, and hear those burdens and pray for them and encourage them. Then he says to put away envy and slander. Now these are cousins as well. Envy and, and slander, these are twins. The main reason you slander somebody is because you're jealous of them. I mean, think about it. If you envy someone, you begin to badmouth them. Your kids come home from school, or you have a friend who is, is saying, somebody said this or badmouthed me or did this or did this. They, 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 they said this about me. They slandered me in this way. And your response was, well, they're, they're doing that because they're jealous of you. And there's a lot of truth to that because the reality is when we have envy in our heart, we are jealous of someone's position. We're jealous or envious of somebody else's looks or their kids or their job or their success or their money. Often once that jealousy and envy creeps into your heart, the next step is slander. Because some way mentally for us, it makes us feel better about ourselves if I can slander this person that has something I want. You've all experienced slander, haven't you? Somebody has, has bashed your character. They've taken a story. They put a spin on it to make it sound bad. Why do they do this? Because of envy, because of jealousy in their heart. And, and, and Peter says, put that away. Put away malice. Put away deceit and hypocrisy. Put away the twins of envy and slander. And instead long for the truth of the gospel. And here's what he says next. Let's read verses four and five. He says, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, in other words, there's this idea, we're coming to him daily. We come to him in salvation, yes. And then there is a daily walk with him. There's a daily relationship with him. So as I come to Jesus, He's a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Why? To be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is he saying here? He's saying that this is like a metaphor. This is, this is a metaphor describing the church of God. The people, you and I, are like living stones. And as a living stone, we are being built up as a spiritual house. As we grow closer to Christ, we long for his word. It creates growth. And as we are growing, we are a living stone. And he is building us up as a spiritual house. We're not passive parts in this house of God. We are active, living and breathing participants in worship. We're told here, he says, to offer acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus. This is our spiritual act of worship. This is a sacrifice as we come and gather to worship him. And so we ask ourselves as believers, what are we truly sacrificing for God today? I mean, what are you really sacrificing? This is why our finances are such a, 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 a big clue into where our heart is today. Are we, are we sacrificing financially for the gospel? This is why our time management is such an indicator as to where our heart is before God. Are we really sacrificing time to minister and to serve God? What are you sacrificing for the Lord today? As we are being built up, as we are growing, we are offering sacrifices to God in worship. Now, as a church, we've been here for seven years and God has grown our church and we have been, we, we've been a part and really witnessed this spiritual house being built. I mean, more living stones, people coming to know Christ, people gathering here for worship on a weekly basis. We are growing numerically. More people are coming. This is a season of growth for us as a church. Uh, the fall usually is because people are back from summer vacations and back from traveling. Everybody is in town, back on a routine, and now our church again is experiencing a spike, and this is great for us. We've also experienced new, uh, not only numerical, but spiritual growth. So people being built up uh, as this spiritual house. These are all wonderful things. We're building our auditorium next door. And so this is a wonderful thing. God is growing us. This is evidence of, of being a church that is alive. We started the day with that song. A church that is alive uh, demands that, that, that we continue to make sacrifices so that we continually reach people with the gospel and continually see God moving. And so, you know, part of a growing church is that you're continually sacrificing. As this property is, is being constructed and things are happening, uh, we're already feeling the tension of parking. And so parking was all already a, a, a tension for us, and now it's going to be even more difficult in the coming months. And we have a tension in this room. This room is completely uh, packed, uh, especially in this hour, the 10 o'clock hour uh, in North America is the number one attended time to go to church. And so it's no wonder why we gather at 10 because it's not too early and it's not too late. It's perfect, right? But as a church that is alive, it really beckons us to continually make sacrifices and continue to experience the tension of more people wanting to be here and more people wanting to experience the gospel like we are. And the problem comes when there's not any parking and not enough seats. These are good problems 
to have. But it's still a problem. And so as we continue to move forward as a church that is alive, wanting more people to experience the gospel, as your pastor, I need you to seriously consider to make a sacrifice for our church. Now, if you are just a visitor, you're new to our church, you can kind of zone out here, you can kind of make a mental note like this is coming down the road for you, like so you can think about it. But for the partners and the attenders in the room, there, there was a card in your chair when you walked in here and you were all wondering, what was this and what is this going to be about? Well, just like we sent Pastor Greg to Washington, D.C., to go on mission, just like we're about to send a team to Haiti to go on mission, just like every week we send you into your community, into your neighborhoods, into your work to take the gospel. I want to send you. So this is, this is a commissioning service for you guys. Here's what I mean. In the name of Jesus, I want to send you to the first service or the second service. I'm sorry, the third service. So so let me, let me just rephrase it like this. In the name of Jesus, sleep in one hour and go to the third service. Or in the name of Jesus, wake up an hour early and come to the first service. Here's why. Because when people come to our church, this is the service that they typically will come to. And so if there are not seats, if it is uncomfortable, if they, you know, parking issues, kid issues, we don't want that to be a barrier for them. And so I want you guys to seriously consider sending yourself, not forever, but for the next 10 months until the auditorium is built. Like once the auditorium is, is built, all bets are off. Go to whatever service you want to go. There's going to be plenty of space at that point. You can get up or whatever at, at your own pace. But for this next season, for the good of our city and gospel, I want you guys to consider making a sacrifice. Now, the two boxes there are that I'm going to commit to the first or commit to the third. Because here's what I know happens. Oh, no, 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 we go to the first. Well, unless it's a late night, and then we sleep in a little bit, and we go to the second, right? And so, so I want us to really make a conscious decision. We are committing to the first service. We are committing to come to the third service. That means we can sleep in, right? Bless the name of Jesus. You know, sleep in for the gospel. That's a great thing. I'm not sending you to Russia, right? sending you to the first service or the third service. These are nice people as well. But I do want us to consider. So we put a card there because I, I really felt like this was an important step of faith and growth for our church. And so if you fill this out today on your way out, giving stations are in the back, giving stations are in the lobby, let us know so that we can prepare in each one of these service, uh, services. But this is, I think, an important part in the growth of our church. And so we are being a church that is on the move. We are alive. God is building us up into a spiritual house. We will continue to make sacrifices that are acceptable to God for the gospel. All right, verse six. It says, for it stands in scripture. And so he quotes a passage from Isaiah 28. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling in a rock of offense they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do now what does this mean the living stone 
trips unbelievers. Well, the living stone is the Messiah. It is Jesus. And so people reject Jesus and they reject him because they trip over the truth of the gospel. They trip, they stumble because he's in a rock of offense. The gospel is offensive. It's offensive in our culture today. You can talk about spiritual things and get away with it. Nobody's going to condemn you. You might, in many circles, be able to mention the name of God. But you mention the name of Jesus and what happens? Huh? You're not allowed to do that, right? Why? Because he is a stumbling block. He is offensive to a culture that desires darkness and not the light. And so he says here that this, this means that, that, that they are stumbling. They won't accept him because they can't accept his word. They stumble. They trip because they refuse. Why? They refuse to obey, it says it right here, the word of the gospel. This means, though, that they are responsible for their decisions. They're responsible for their rejection. Their stumbling over this cornerstone is not by accident, though. As humans often trip unintentionally, this is not the case. In this instance, humans stumble because of their rebellion. Because they do not want to submit to the lordship of God. And so verse 8 gives us one of the, if not the most challenging verses in the entire Bible. God is sovereign in election. We talked about that last week. God is sovereign even in disobedience. He's in control. And those who disobey the word are willingly rejecting this gospel. And so this is a matter of tension. This is a matter of a mystery of God. How, how in fact, God is sovereign in election and in disobedience. And that at the same time, we are held responsible for our decisions. God does not sin. He he cannot sin. And so we, we see these two truths being taught in Scripture. It is a tension. For further study, I encourage you to read The Prodigal God by Tim, Timothy Keller. It's a great next step. So to transition from God's sovereignty, uh, I thought the Lego movie might be a good spot to go to today. Some of you have seen the Lego movie, right? Your kids have seen this. Um, came out a few years ago, so if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert coming at you. I figure if you haven't seen it by now, it's, it's your own fault. But in this story, um, the main character, Emmett, is this normal construction guy. He doesn't have any friends. Everybody basically ignores him, and uh, he doesn't feel special um, at all. And so he's trying to make friends. Everybody ignores him. And then one day, he meets this girl called Wildside, who he immediately is attracted to, right? She has no, she has wants nothing to do with Emmett. But he still is in this, 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 this story with her, and he finds what's called the craggle. And by finding the craggle, which is really the cap of a crazy glue thing, but anyway, he realizes that he is the fulfillment of a prophecy. And, 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 and so he is the special, okay? Are you with me? Are you tracking with the Lego movie right now? So, so he's the special. Now, here's a guy who was insignificant and all alone, and now he's the special who is going to save the world. So through the story, he's struggling with self-doubt, and it's a pretty funny story. And, and he's saving the world from Lord business, right? 
And so, so the story finally gets to this culminating point to where the guy who was talking about this prophecy actually says that he made up the prophecy. It's a, it's a lie, right? And so at that point, Emmett's like, ah, oh, I knew I wasn't special. I knew I didn't have anything to offer. I knew nobody would like me. But then that's where the story takes the twist. And in reality, he does end up saving the world and doing an incredible act of sacrifice, which leads to many, many friends and this feeling of significance. Even though he didn't, he wasn't the special, he did something special. Now, here's why I tell this story, because in that story and in almost every single story that you love, every movie or book that you love, there are these two problems that you and I face as human beings. And it's this feeling, this, this fear of being alone and this fear of living a life that is insignificant. So think about it. A lot of the decisions that we make, the problems that we have, come out of this, this fear that we're going to be alone or that we're going to be insignificant in, in life. And so, so I love this movie and I love how it, it helps those who are depressed feel good. They have this really good song that says everything is awesome, right? <laughs> everything is cool when you're part of a team, right? Everything is awesome. And so it, it, it helps us deal with our own emotions. But I want us to think about this because this next section of scripture, it really dives into our identity, who we are. And a lot of people struggle with who they are. They struggle with you know, who am I really? <clears throat> and so what we do is we, we, we tag our identity to like what our occupation is. And so that brings us some, some form of identity. I'm a pastor, I'm a teacher, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm whatever. I'm a parent. Or in our success, you know, we find our identity. We find our identity in our our, um, our relationships. And so a lot of people who are single think, man, I'm gonna overcome this fear of loneliness and insignificance by finding a significant other. And so when I find that person, then I'll feel significant again. And, and so, so some single people in the room are hoping to overcome loneliness by finding a spouse. And, and there are some people who have been married for 10 years who would say, I have never felt more lonely in my entire life. And the reason is because your spouse, another relationship, is never going to make you experience and ultimately feel significant in this world. You're never gonna have your loneliness completely taken away by another relationship or by success or by a job. And so we struggle with who we are. And so the scripture now turns our attention to who we are in Christ. Because who we are in Christ is exactly what we should be living out of and be living for. Instead of banking our hope and our attention on relationships and on accomplishments. Because these relationships will ultimately fail us. Our accomplishments, that, that, that coolness factor will ultimately wear off. And we'll ultimately be back in this condition of feeling insignificant and feeling alone all again, unless, unless, unless we find our significance and our identity in Christ. And so here's what he says. Let's look at verse 9. 
He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in Christ, this is who we are. So stay with me this morning. The first thing that we notice is in verse nine, you are a chosen race. Here's what this means. I am acceptable. You come into this room today struggling with your identity, struggling with this idea that I don't wanna be alone. I don't wanna be alone. I don't wanna be insignificant. And so we're grasping for things to feel significant. We're grasping for things to help us not feel alone. But we constantly feel alone and insignificant. But in Christ, we see that I am accepted. Not because of anything I have done, not because of how I've looked or, or what I do. Simply by the mercy of God, he calls me his child. This is talking about our corporate identity as the church, but the implication, obviously, is for us as individuals because this is not racial. The chosen race is not black or white or tan. The chosen race is a new people out of all people and all colors and all cultures who are now aliens and strangers in this world, but now we are the new chosen race. Together we are a new people, a new family, a new race. It is out of our chosenness that we have been called God's children. And so it's through his mercy. And so I am accepted today as a believer. Now, this is important for our culture because we do some really crazy things to overcome this loneliness and insignificance. And we desire acceptance so much we desire it that we will do some really dumb things. Some of you as kids played, you know, these games where you would be dared to do something and you did that really dumb thing that put your life in harm's way. Remember that? Famous last words of a redneck, watch this, you know? It's like, we've all been in those shoes and, and why would we put ourselves in harm's way? Why would we do that? Well, because we wanna be accepted. We want to be loved. We want to be remembered by the crowd. And so high school and middle school is this quest for being remembered and being a part of this crowd. So we'll do dumb things. We'll, we'll experience some, some really crazy things. Why? Because we want to be accepted. Now, as adults, that tendency does not wear off. And now we have social media that is the epicenter of acceptance. Every post, every picture is, hey, 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 accept me. Look how I worked out today. Accept me, like me. Look what my family did today, like us, affirm us. And everything that I post and everything that you post is this cry for affirmation. It's a cry for acceptance to the world. And, and, and those of us that are a part of social media, we see it every day. And you know the people that post constantly. And you see their post constantly about themselves and you're thinking, man, they're posting way too much. Why? Acceptance, affirmation. We love it. We long for it. 
even to the days of childhood when we were on the ball field or the basketball court and you were playing baseball or you're about to play something at school. And typically when you divided up teams, the two best athletes were the captains. And then they picked one at a time. Remember that? I don't know if they allow you to do that in school anymore. Everybody's too sensitive. But back in the day, that's how it worked. And so you sat there and you waited for that guy to choose you. And you couldn't wait. Because out of the two guys, there was one guy that was better. And you wanted to be on his team. And so you're dying. Choose me. Choose me. I want to be accepted by that guy. And if you got picked first, you felt accepted. Second and third and fourth and so on. And if you were the last one or two to be picked, you were sweating it, right? Armpits are sweating. You're like, you know, getting ready to play the excuse, I don't want to play anyway, you know. (laughs) I needed to do some other things. There were some girls that wanted to hang out, you know. So you're getting your, and then if you didn't get picked at all, it was a destroying feeling, wasn't it? Why? Because we long to be accepted. This is something that is very deep-seated in the DNA of human beings. That's why we do and say very dumb things at times. That's why even as an adult at work, you might even sin. You might lie, cheat, and steal at work. Why? To be accepted by your coworkers because you don't want to be the guy that stands out as odd or that has character or that is, you know, the goody-goody. And so we'll do some crazy things to be accepted, but we don't have to gain acceptance from the world. We don't need to crave that acceptance. We find our significance, and we find this acceptance in Christ. And so as we go to God's word, we realize that we are chosen, that we are accepted by him. So you don't have to prove anything to anyone else. He has already chosen you to be on the team. The second thing that we learn here is that I have a significant life to live for Jesus. Not only am I accepted, but I have an important, a valuable role, a significant life to live for Jesus. He says, you are a royal priesthood. Earlier, he said in in verses um, verses four and five, he calls us a chosen and precious priesthood, a holy priesthood. What does this mean? Well, we call this in uh, the church world the priesthood of believers. And what this means is it's, it's a very important truth from Scripture. We see it most, most solidly here, but all throughout the New Testament, we see that the Bible teaches that every single believer is a priest. You don't have to wear the collar, and you know, you're not going to have to get up and teach, but the Bible calls you a priest. Now, not a pastor. An elder pastor is a unique office in the church, but as believers, all of us are called to priestly service. Now, priestly ministry, and so what that means is we are all called to serve. We are all called to do ministry. Now, in the Old Testament, a priest had a, a unique and special role. Like he was set apart more so than the normal follower of God. And so he had responsibilities in worship. He was the guy that made sacrifices to God. He sacrificed animals. And and so the priest served as a mediator between the people and God himself. And so once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. That was the very center of the temple where the presence of God lived. And it was separated by this huge veil, basically a huge 70-foot curtain. 
And that priest would go in there once a year and offer that sacrifice for the people to God, serving as the mediator between God and man, forgiving the sins of the people by the blood of that animal. And so when we see Jesus coming, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of that changed. No longer was the sacrifice of animals appropriate because the precious blood of Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Also, no longer was the priest needed or required because Jesus is the mediator between man and God. Read the book of Hebrews to shed light on that. This was a once and for all act by God. In Matthew 27, 51, it says that at the crucifixion, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. So the 70-foot curtain was, top, uh, was, was separated, was ripped apart. God is symbolizing here that there is no barrier between man and God. Through Jesus, the, the, the gap is bridged. So this is great news for us. This is why the Catholic Church is committing heresy. This is why the Reformation uh, from John Calvin, from Martin Luther, was so important for you and us today. Because a multiple of reasons, one being the priesthood of believers. You do not need me to gain access to God. You do not need me to seek forgiveness of your sins. You do not need me to, to teach you the Bible, although this is part of what we do as a church. You can go read your Bible, praise God on your own, hear from the Lord, pray to God on your own, because there is no division any longer. By the blood of Jesus, you have access. And the other thing that this means is, yes, you have access to God, but secondly, it means that you have been gifted by God to do a priestly work, to do a priestly ministry. And so we say, you know, things like every member is a minister. Every person here today who is a believer in Jesus Christ is a minister in some form or fashion to the church and to the community. And so that's why we have Camp 2, a class that helps you discover how God has designed you, how he has gifted you, and how you and I serve him today. So this is huge. The priesthood of believers. And then finally, he says that, he, he shows us that that because we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, we are, in verse 9, a people for his own possession. Why? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You, have, you hadn't received God's mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. This means that I am forgiven, that in Christ I'm forgiven. You are forgiven. And if you haven't come to Christ, here's the other thing. You are forgivable. All you need to do is come to Christ. Receive him into your life and he'll forgive you of all your sin. Now this is great. I'm, I'm accepted. I have a significant life to live. And I've, I've been forgiven of all my sin, and, 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 and now I, I walk in this identity with Christ as I am being built up as a spiritual house. I'm, I'm growing and, and, and coming out of infancy and coming into mature manhood as I understand the gospel, as I understand my identity, that Jesus Christ has ultimately forgiven me of my sin. So the bottom line today is this. God shows you who you are so that you could show the world who he is. 
God shows us who we are in scripture. This is who you are. This is your identity. You're chosen. You're accepted. You're loved. You're forgiven. You've got a role to play in the kingdom of God, ultimately overcoming those two problems that every single one of us battle in life, loneliness and insignificance. In Christ, we find a family, we find a relationship with God, and we find our significance that he has given us a role to play in the kingdom of God. He says it in verse 9 here that we might proclaim the excellencies of of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We weren't a people, now we're a people. That means that he shows us who we are. We find our identity in him so that we can show the world who he is. Now, I realize many of you are still battling that problem of loneliness and insignificance. And the reason is, maybe you're single and you think that your hope or your your loneliness will be overcome by relationship. And while... You know, that there is a component to where relationship is good. It's not good for man to be alone. Ultimately, that need is not going to be overcome in another person. Some of you, maybe all you care about is sports. And your identity is in knowing sports and following sports. And so you find relationships with other guys who care about those sports. But it's all a very superficial level of relationship. There's no depth to that. There's no growth in that. And in Christ, you, you, you recognize that there is a deeper level of significance and connection that God offers to you. And so as we close today, I want us to, to kind of rally around this idea and concept that, that in Christ, you are not alone. In Christ, you find connection. In Christ, you find significance. And yet, too many believers in the room are not walking in that identity. And my challenge for you today is to run to Jesus, to run to the word of God, and to experience his truth, to experience this this taste that is so good. You will always want to run back to it and experience more of it. And thereby, finding that significance and finding that connection that the human soul longs for. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.